Hello, Kristen here. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to tell you that the antidote is a thing that's happening. It's a series of monthly gatherings that will help you return to your body and your being over and over again in the face of, you know, 2024, election insanity, climate change, global wars, your own personal stuff, other stuff. It's crazy out there. And it's easy to abandon yourself and freak out. The antidote is for bringing you home to yourself so that you can be safe in your being even when the world outside of you feels objectively unsafe. And because everybody's marketing at you and there's no reason for you to believe me, you can head to jointheantidote.com to grab a free recording of the first session that happened this week so you can feel it instead of thinking about it to see if it's a good match for you. That is jointheantidote.com. Scroll all the way down and you will see a place to pop your email address in and grab the recording. Hi, guys. Welcome to this episode of That's What She Said. And I've got the lovely Lila on the phone from Flying Kites. Uh, you might remember that a few years ago I went to Kenya and you were all like, what the fuck are you doing in Kenya? And I was like, I'm going to Flying Kites. And Lila <laughs> founded Flying Kites. So hi. Hi, Kristen. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I'm I'm so glad to sneak you away from your cushy Boston office for a couple of seconds to talk to me. So, which by the way, she assembles bookshelves like a champion, guys. You should, it's it's good. Just yeah, like, but just don't put any heavy books on them. <laughs> 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 like, That's why you have to like structural pieces. <laughs> Nothing of any significance can go on those shelves. <laughs> they're, but they're beautiful, and that's the exactly. important part. Okay, so if someone has never, they're like, I don't give a fuck about flying cars. I don't know what the fuck that is. I don't care. Um, can Hi, you give Dad. me like the? <laughs> can you give me like the um, the two minute explanation of how it is that you described uh, what you do in the world? Sure. So um, Flying Kites is a nonprofit organization, and we are building a school, a boarding school, for orphans and critically poor elementary students in Kenya, in rural Kenya. So we're about two hours outside of Nairobi at the foothills of the Aberdeen Mountains um, in an absolutely stunning farm. And we have about 80 kids in our program who um, some of them live in the community and they come to our school as day scholars. And then about half of them do not have um, either parents or a safe place to stay um, in the wider community, so they live with us um, th throughout the year. Awesome. Yeah. And how long have you been doing this badass work that you do? I have been doing this, it feels like eternity. Um, I started flying kites with my college roommate and my best friend in 2000, and I guess technically we registered in 2007. Um, the summer that we graduated from college, we went out to Kenya and we bought our first three acres and very quickly um, got in way over our head. <laughs> Just how kind of all the best things happen, I think. Yeah, so how is it that you're 
So how is it that you're still around, I guess, is the next obvious question. Um, I think I'm just, like, unemployable that, I mean... anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> I have no choice. <sighs> um, so how did it go so, from... Sure. Go ahead. No, I was going to say how that I'm still around. Well, I mean, both um, both of my co-founders are also sort of still in the picture, but just in different ways. Uh, Justine's is on our board um, and sort of carries a lot of the responsibility that way. She also just had a little baby, um, so she's got her hands incredibly full. And then Toby is um, an incredible adventurer, and he kind of travels the world mixing his love of adventure with his passion for social justice. So his newest project in the Congo. Um, so it just kind of, everybody just kind of fell into a groove that kind of worked for them, I think. Yeah, so your official title right now is Executive Director and Founder? Yes, Executive Director. Cool. Yeah. And I like to just have my title as like Executive Director, not Executive Director and Founder, because like anybody who knows much about nonprofits, it's like when somebody's the Executive Director and Founder, it's like they have probably been doing it for a long time and they might have a certain way of doing it and they're probably really controlling and they definitely have founder syndrome. So typically I just stick with executive director. And then okay, founder, so, you know, will come later. So being the founder is a red flag for other people. Yeah, so being the founder and the executive director for anybody that knows anything about nonprofits is probably a red flag. That's funny. I like that yeah. a lot. So help me understand, um, you said something interesting that I was like, I don't know how you would possibly distinguish between the kids that are there in your community that are poor and the kids that are critically poor and then they end up in the program of flying kites. How does one make that distinction? Sure. sure. So, I mean, we use um, pretty standard measures by meeting, by make, to make that determination. So for me, critically poor is when you're really kind of stand, standing in the gap between life and death. So um, the children that we work with um, will, their financial situation will be incredibly fragile. So something like they might have one dairy cow um, and they'll sell the milk from that dairy cow to make maybe 75 cents a day. Um, and with that, their parents are trying to feed them, um, take care of their medical needs, send them to school, probably pay rent on property. So critically poor is um, when that cow gets sick or that cow dies, um, there is no, there's nothing to fall back on. Um, and that cow was really the only thing that was, that was kind of stopping them from falling into homelessness um, or extreme poverty where you find children who are so severely malnourished their life is in danger. Um, and I like, you know, we work in Dabini because um, because of where we're located and, and because everybody in our community are farmers, it, you know, we kind of stand at the intersection between poverty and prosperity, you know, so what that means is that an, a small intervention, like a loan of $1,000 um, or, you know, risking schooling for your children can make the difference between an upward trajectory, like you're pulling yourself out of poverty and you are sinking back down into poverty and there's nothing that you'll be able to do to get back on sort of the economic ladder, if you will. Sure. 
So you are, yeah, no, that that was very, very well articulated. Like, oh, okay, you. so if my cow gets sick, then it's it's all over for me. And like, truly, there's sure. nothing to fall back on. I'm not educated. I'm not like. Sure, exactly. That's, or it could be anything. Or your kid gets sick, and you you use half your money for rent to take them to the doctor, and you know, and they they don't get the treatment that they need. It's just it crazy for it's just one tiny thing has to not go as planned and you'll lose your home and you could lose your life. Yeah. And your work ironically is done in one of the most um fertile parts of Africa. Yeah, I mean they call it being like the breadbasket. It's it's um it's a really rich and beautiful place, but you can be somewhere that's that fertile, but if you don't have access to um, the knowledge, if you don't have access to land, if you don't have access to seedlings, if you don't have the time, if you don't have the strength, and so there's, it's ironic that that's, you know, that there's so much potential, but there's so much need in terms of um, helping people to, to lift them and their families out of poverty. Yeah, and to help people picture, because when um, the stereotype of Kenya is that it's going to be flat, it's going to be hot, it's going to be like ready, red dirt mud, and there are probably going to sure. be elephants like, at every fucking juncture, just waiting to <laughs> stand very still for your portraits of them. Um, Jabini is like crazy lush and green. Like I just kept wandering around being like, it's so green. It's just so Yeah, I mean, green. you could be in Switzerland. It's so every picture looks like you've overexposed it. It's so, so beautiful. We do actually have elephants in our backyard, which is very cool. Um, Allegedly, though I've never seen one. And spent oh, have you not? There, so you have to go on a hike. No, I haven't. Go on yeah. a hike with Mike, and you not only will you see them, you will fear for your life when you see them. Because <laughs> <laughs> there will be like seven of them, and you'll be the only one without, you know, an AK-47 to protect you. <laughs> Right. Good. Good. That sounds amazing. So, and Jabini is, is also in the, uh, like, the foothills of the Aberdare Mountains. Makes it sound really nice, but its elevation is actually what? Above uh, I think, I think about 8,000. We're high. Yeah. No yeah, it's cold and it's hard to breathe, just so we're clear. Yeah. Like it. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to breathe for, like, the first two days. And then you just, yeah, and then you get used to it. It's not how you get up at, you know, I want you to Yeah. Okay. So we've given a context and we've given what it is that you do. And it's been since 2007 and it's now 2016, which probably makes you feel old, I'm guessing. Oh, my God. No, I feel <laughs> young as a spring chicken. <laughs> sure you do. Sure you do. I'll let you have that one. Um, so tell me about, can you, before you kind of parade out your successes and your most amazing and lovely feats and, and works. Um, I'm totally interested in everybody just fucking give money to flying kites. Like I I do and you should and that's that's a given. Um, but what are some programs that you've like or some programs or initiatives or posts that you started and then fucking fail? Like those are interesting to me. Or that fail? Yeah, that were just like, yeah, that's oh my God. all. Oh my gosh, so many things. I, I like how long do you have? Like give um, me your I mean, top three that were like this is because it's the thing is that like in theory and on paper you would never have started it if it was gonna fail. You were like this is fucking brilliant. I'm gonna sure. do this and then no, it's actually no. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example from both sides. 
um, from the U.S. side and from the Kenya side. From the U.S. side, we had we were sort of inspired by this organization, Invisible Children, which actually I think they just closed down shop, so that might tell you something. <laughs> but, um, awesome. They had this amazing sort of network of colleges that were um, their backbone, and were raising a ton of money for them. So we, you know, having sort of been freshly out of college ourselves, we thought that this was also going to be um, a great way to generate income. So we bought, and by we, I was really never on the bandwagon for this, but the Flying Cage team purchased a RV mm -hmm. and convinced a donor to pay to have it wrapped. So this RV was wrapped with Lucy Obama's face and the Flying Cage logo. Mm -hmm. And they took the RV um, from college campus to college campus to give presentations. But, you know, they said they booked. I mean, I, they, I think their first road trip was, like, across California or something like that. Um, okay. I wasn't there. I, I couldn't live in an RV. Um, and <laughs> I love you after, for that. <laughs> after about four months, three or four months, we realized that the program was just bleeding money. I mean... I guess it took us that long to realize, like, hey, college kids don't have any money, and if you know. they do, they're they're not they're not writing big checks. They have a ton of passion, you know. Like, it was confusing for us because we'd have all these people show up to an event and get so excited, ask such great questions, but like, it, that sort of energy was not translating into the number of kids we were able to help in Kenya. So it sort of uh, there came this painful time when we were like. You have to, you know, you at some point you have to make a decision. Are you an organization that's educating kids here about challenges of global poverty, or are you an organization in Kenya that's trying to impact as many kids as possible and raise the level of care that you give to them? So we had to put the program, unwrap the RV, sell it for much less than we bought it, and sort of cancel the rest of our presentations and just sort of feel bitter towards college kids ever since. I'm just kidding. Oh, well, no, because they can buy it. Like, I remember scrounging up like five bucks to find a pizza, and that was a very good day. But I would have, like, gone yeah. to Kenya, no problem. Yeah, I mean, that's what the struggle is. So many people do, and those are the same kids that, that sign up to fly out to Kenya. But it's like when you're talking about just fundraising, um, it, was just, it was a program that didn't make sense for us. Um, and then a program in Kenya that we put a lot of energy behind that failed was we tried to create this kind of coalition of, um, before we were a school, we were really an orphanage. Um, and we tried to create this coalition of, of orphanage directors um, all throughout Nairobi. You know, a lot of them were local Kenyans, you know, had very little access to any resources. Um, many of them you know, hadn't finished high school themselves. They just were kind of called to do this work because they had been living in the slums and they saw the situations that, you know, the kids were in. So we put together this um, coalition of non of nonprofit uh, orphanage directors and we mm -hmm. ran workshops on how to, you know, on child protection, on how to build a website, on how to get volunteers to Kenya, et cetera, et cetera. And mm -hmm. it sort of fell, the program, like, really fell apart sort of four months into it. We um, had been, we'd been, we had this sort of web website 
template, um, as you will, and we had a web builder on our team, so we were actually building the websites for these orphanages for free and just giving it to them. But there sort of became, you know, there's this kind of, in the nonprofit world in Kenya, there's this sort of culture of suspicion, and a few of the directors were convinced that we were, they didn't really understand that we were also running our own home, so they felt like that that they that the money that we were raising, you know, they were seeing us raising money. They felt like we were raising money and not almost like if it was a co-op. You know, we were bringing money in and not sharing it with them. So it sort of turned um, tense. The environment it was sort of hard to communicate um, with the directors that we were not here to fund them. We were going to do capacity building. We were going to help them get their own funding. Uh, but it was just this huge miscommunication, and the program just totally fell apart at the scenes. Well, that sounds like not as much. That, that sounds painful on, for everyone yeah, it was. at every level. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of pain when programs fail because people, you know, relationships fail, and it's painful. Especially when it's rooted in miscommunication or. You know, or pain because, you know, the the suspicion that they had was probably a result of being exploited in the past. So, yeah, a lot of pain. So that's harder. And yeah, then sure. um, there are two ways we can go. One is to talk about miscommunication, and you can tell the Richard Branson story, which is my favorite. Um, mm -hmm. Or to talk about um, what is – so for those of us that do not run nonprofits because we are terrible at paperwork, i.e. me, um, capacity building sounds like a really interesting concept that I don't think I've ever heard before because I don't nonprofit oh, except for you. Oh, it's stupid nonprofit jargon that we get used to saying because we have to write it in our grants. It just means um, <laughs> <laughs> it means nothing, but it's uh, training. It's like built literally the capacity of somebody to do something, building it. You know, so rather than going in and giving somebody money going in and teaching them how to raise money or be a better teacher or do their accounts or build a website or plant their farm or whatever it is. Yeah, no, I didn't call it out because it sounded stupid. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, that there's, But it seems like there's, um, as you evolve, like your kind of internal capacity building as well. Like what would have taken you down three years ago is now like, well, that happened. And we're moving yeah, on. Yes, sure. Resilience and grit takes a lot of time, I think. And it's you just get beaten down by life and you have such serious things happen that you just get perspective. I think for everyone in any career or any life any life that they're living. Yeah, it just happens to be that yours is always in public and you're accountable to donors when it happens. Yes, for sure. So at least at least when I fuck up, I'm like, yeah, I fucked up. Don't have to go to a board meeting about that today. Thank God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah true. So I, I find well, you that you got to get boards that are like in the trenches with you. Yeah. So who of the who is the best at paperwork? Are you good at paperwork? Are you like? Because the reason I love paperwork. having a nonprofit. What and paperwork? Then, You're so terrified of paperwork. No, paperwork. I am. I really am. No. Um, 
So I would have people who are like, you should have a nonprofit. And I'm like, no, I should not because one, I would have to be nice to people I don't like in order to get their money. And two, <laughs> paperwork, like legalities upon legalities upon legalities and red tape. And I'm not good at any of those things. So are you naturally good at those things? That's I, I never good at them, I'm pretty I've sure. Never, I have never done a piece of paperwork in my life. <laughs> but Truly. it's such a lie. You have like no, acres and acres in Kenya. Yeah, but that's good at outsourcing. the land title. You just, yeah, you find them, the guy who owns the land and you name it and they talk to his brother. And it, there's not that much paperwork. You had a file <laughs> for your initial like nonprofit, but it's all like, well, I'll send you some, some template links. You can generate it all online. Yeah, no, I don't want to start a nonprofit. I just want to support it. <laughs> just to be clear, I was like, I'm totally good. okay with that. So what would you say? I want to ask like a, yeah, good because that's what I've decided. That's how it's going. Um, the awesome. hardest part and then the best part, are, um, they might even be the same thing of actually They're running a nonprofit. Not. Okay, cool. Um, so dual question: hardest part, best part of running a nonprofit for as long as you have, which is considerable. The hardest part of running a nonprofit is. Um, being a salesperson, having to convince people all the time to choose your cause and to give you their money um, is just kind of exhausting. And it's sometimes it's really amazing when, when people surprise you and when you have a goal and, and everybody gets behind you to help you reach it. But other times it's just like straight up demoralizing. Um, <laughs> it's demoralizing because I think everybody gets into this field because they want to make a difference and because they're sort of seduced by maybe some volunteer work they've done or they spend time on the ground actually doing the work. And then very quickly they realize that if you're like me and you grew up in the States, you really have no business being in Kenya teaching a classroom or raising kids or you know, the best that I can do for flying kites in Kenya is to raise money. And that's kind of sad because I wish that I could spend most of my time in Kenya with the kids where I sort of began in the first place. Um, but so you sort of become reduced to this fundraising machine um, and you somehow become more disconnected from the day-to-day -day happenings that sort of inspired you in the first place. Um, and it can be hard to like sort of walk into a room and, and think to yourself, like, okay, how can I bring the kids to this person? How can I get them to give? Um, so it's hard that, that a lot of your goals are dependent upon money, and it's not as though you're selling a service or you're selling a product. Um, just nonprofit in that sense is challenging. Um, sure. And in the, in the sense of the, so the hardest and the best, very best, yeah. The best part is just when things work. When um, when you take in kids who would have otherwise literally had no returns, and you kind of watch them reclaim their childhood. You know, they go from being these really sort of terrified, withdrawn children to just normal goofy kids that you see anywhere. Um, that's definitely uh, where you feel like it's all worth it. No, yeah, kids. Can you give kids me a specific kids. example? Sure. Like this kid, Mosh, that we took in, uh, he was severely malnourished, really timid, uh, 
sad, afraid, and I think maybe like six months into him being a flying kite, he threw his first tantrum. Like, you know, all the toys came out of the basket, like full-on tantrum. And it was just, and we were laughing, and he was so mad and furious and throwing things, and we were all laughing because it was such a happy moment because when a child feels safe enough to really have a meltdown to that degree, you know that you're definitely doing something right. Um, so that's kind of an example of when kids can just be kids that you see anywhere else in the world. Yeah, they're not, he's not afraid that he's going to be kicked out because he's throwing a exactly. shoe or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure he's cool. probably so, never thrown a tantrum. I've never seen a child throw a tantrum, but... Nope. <laughs> oh, man. So then the other part of it, um, I guess the question is, so, like, if you ask my people what the hardest part of being in business is, they would no doubt say sales, but you guys, like, at least you get to sell a product or a service. Um, right. And what I find fascinating about flying kites is that it doesn't resort to um, this is a picture of a child with a distended belly as the arms of the angel play and flies circle its bald head. Like, and it's an it at that point. Like, it's just something that you use to get money. But you refuse to do that. But you're like, yes, it's a, absolutely it's a home. It's a school. They start out that way. We don't show those photos. And then they end up as normal kids. And can you talk a little bit more about that choice? Because you make it every single day. And it would be so much easier to get media attention if you would just go with, like, the sad songs and the heartbreak sure. and the misery, because it seems like that's what most nonprofits do, and you don't, and that's why I love you. So can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it is something that we think and talk about every day, um, and we definitely don't always get it right. But you know, between our U.S. staff here and our team in Kenya, we're always kind of having a conversation like, what's too much information, you know, like we just posted about this girl who wanted to go to school, you know, and you change your name, or you change your age, or you change her circumstances, but uh, it's okay to describe her as depressed if she was depressed, or, you know, I think that the biggest thing for me is, like, there's so much of that coming out of the nonprofit sector. There's so much, so many people reproducing this really bad, crappy kind of safe African narrative. And first of all, I mean, it's, it's not it's not representative of what we see. You know, there everyone that I've met in Jabini is sort of a social entrepreneur, you know, working overtime to kind of change their own situation. So we really strive not to portray people either as victimized or as hopeless um, or helpless. And um, I think because of that, we've kind of you know, we've attracted like a a thoughtful group of donors who are more drawn to success than they are to suffering. You know, our kid like I find that I find that yes, you know, if I showed this this child when they first came and how sad and homeless and hungry they were, it actually makes people feel further away from that child because we don't have a frame of reference for that here in the States. You know, we don't really lose kids because they couldn't have a drink of water or a piece of bread. It's sort of, you just make it more sort of other. So we try to show our kids um, in, this, in the same light that, that people understand kids here uh, as the whole spectrum of 
of talent and emotions uh, and capability. So, yeah, our mission is to really raise kids the way, you know, you would raise your own child. So we're also kind of fundraising um, with that same framework in terms of the ethics of representation, you know. It's, it's not okay to show some naked, sad kids on Facebook or anywhere. And I love you for your ethics of representation. Like that's thank you. I that's because it, it would probably just be easier to tip right into that and be like, okay, cool. Let's just have some sad days and then show the big turnaround and voila. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's hard, and I get why people do it because they're seeing this stuff and they want other people to see it. But at some point, I think you're just kind of feeding into a stereotype that's kind of hurting the people that you're trying to help. Sure, sure. And you're feeding that stereotype of Africa is just a sad, downtrodden place with the, you know, the, the people who right. come in and save. Yeah, which is... Right, 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 yeah. right. No. Cool. I, I, I like your perspective on that. So what has got you the most excited at flying kites right at this very moment in time? The most excited at flying kites right in this very moment in time would probably be our capital campaign. We are gearing up to double uh, the size of our impact, and we are raising money for our boys' dorm right now. We just got a gift for our girls' dorm. Um, and putting in a few new doors, you know, means we can reach a lot more kids who need us. Um, and it's the beginning of, of building out our full campus, which will have somewhere between 160 to 180 kids. Um, and it's sort of like you know, an unprecedented opportunity in rural Kenya for a really high level of education. I love it. So tell me what you're building. You're building. Um, tell me more about the the so dorm. We're building home, the... Sure. So we're building a girls' dorm, um, breaking ground at the end of March, and we're frantically trying to raise money to build the boys' dorm so that we can do both at the same time to save about 15 percent on each building. Um, and after that, we're going to build four new classroom blocks. Um, after that, we're going to do some staff housing, then we're going to go back to do more classroom blocks. Then we're going to do a proper um, soccer field. Um, then we're going to do a large auditorium slash uh, cafeteria. Yeah, we're just going to go building by building until we have a, a world-class campus. Yeah, and how long, so to get to that point, like the, the auditorium cafeteria is done, is that like five years? Is that ten well, years? How long no. is that? God, I hope not. Um, it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, 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 if we won the lottery tomorrow, we would break ground on all of the buildings tomorrow. So it's really, um, it's really dependent upon our fundraising. So it's kind of hard to predict. But, um, yeah, we, I mean, we'd like to have the money raised in, in three years. Cool. Yeah, but we'll see. I like it a lot. Absolutely. And what has you most excited personally? Um, this is the part where my husband laughs and I'm like, uh, professionally versus <laughs> personally. Isn't that the same thing? <laughs> um. I really just wanted to talk about your book in public, so I couldn't harass you about it. 
I think it's, it's safe to call it a collection of essays in a book from Sandra Wallace, Jerry, don't you think? Okay. Okay. So, Lila, tell us about your collection of essays. I'm putting together, with the help of a very dear friend, um, a collection of essays about um, my time in Kenya, some challenges, some really awesome parts, and also um, perspectives on running a nonprofit here in the States and the fundraising and the highs and the lows. Yeah. Yeah, without it sucking. That's exciting to me. Yeah, I hope it's not going to suck. I mean, but that's the big thing is that we just don't want this to be another, like, what did you call it, like, tears from from something? I don't know. We don't want it to be a a book about a girl who finds herself in Africa. (laughs) I mean, a collection of essays about a girl who finds herself in Africa. It's okay if you find yourself in Africa. It just has to be entertaining to read, and it can't be, like, sad porn or poverty porn. Like, look how poor they were, and then I saved them. Yay. No. Yeah, that would be a fiction. That would be, that would be a fiction piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't write fiction. Right. Like, um, my kids will go up and read it, and they'll be like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my, my biggest critic in my head is like, I think I'm like, you know, 6.5 and being like, but I do talk. <laughs> but I do talk to essays. It's like, what are you saying? And he's like, what are you saying? Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. So it's great to have a timeline and a project and something that I can pour my heart into. And it's great that I feel like it's just the right time is what I should be doing when I sit down to write so it's actually tough. If you know anything about writing, incredibly fortunate and rare. Sure. So when people tend to be um, interested in um, things like social justice, but in the very action-oriented sense, and so what is sort of your best advice for those people who are like, yes, I want to change the world, but also I don't want to be um, the typical, um, I just gave some money and never connected with an organization again, or I went to volunteer for a week and then never spoke to anybody again. Like, how do people find organizations that they really, truly love in your experience? So maybe it's Flying Kites, maybe it's not. I'm okay with that. But um, how do you find the best donors and uh, organizations match and meet up? Um, I think, like anything in life, it's kind of a chemistry thing. I think you have to, uh, first, you have to believe in the cause. Um, you have to find it speaks to you, whether it's animal conservation or education, um, you know, autism, Alzheimer's, I mean, whatever it is that sort of has, has meaning for you. It doesn't mean you have to have had a personal experience with it. Um, but it has to be something that speaks to you. And then I guess the most important part is to figure out what they need. Kind of put your agenda a little bit to the side and figure out what they need. I mean, a great example of this is like a donor, um, maybe this incredible family of donors in Abadabi, um, an American family of donors in Abadabi, I think, said to me last week, and they were like, we want to go, we want to fly to Kenya, and we want to give um, two of you are potential graduates last fall, uh, and we'll send them to Kenya and we'll go back. 
And after talking, you know, they, they sort of they initially just said talk sort of get more feedback. And after talking for 30, 40 minutes, you know, she said to me, Okay, what I'm sensing is the laptops might be premature because we're not sure where they're going to school. They don't really have uh, a safe place to keep the laptop. Um, and you know, you're saying that we're going to be going to vocational school, so you know, a set of tools might be more meaningful than a laptop. So when I'm going to Nairobi, um, we're going to hold off on a laptop, and the money that we would have spent on a flight to Nairobi, we're going to donate to you. You know, that was such an amazing example of just like somebody who really was just searching for how they could be the most meaning, meaningful, how, to, how they could, you know, contribute to us in a way that was the most meaningful. I mean, yeah, having them come to Nairobi for the weekend and give two laptops is amazing, and we would be so lucky just to get that. But there was a way for them to, to participate that had even more meaning, and that was to wait and to see what both boys wanted to do for college. And maybe it wouldn't be a laptop, maybe it would be, you know, getting their driver's license, or maybe it would be another investment that they could make of the same amount that would be better for us. So just, I think it's that sort of listening first, that really thoughtful approach that makes all the difference between donors who, or donors or volunteers who kind of jump in with their own agenda and become a burden on a nonprofit versus people who are more thoughtful and sort of wait and see how they can participate in a way that's best for both kind of parties. Yeah, no, I love it. And I love the idea of chemistry, that as much as everyone cares about breast cancer, it's the flying kites is my jam, and it doesn't mean I don't wish awesome. breast cancer well. <laughs> I mean, you know, but that's, I mean, and that's the big thing is, like, it doesn't, you know, if you're working with kids in, in Kenya, it doesn't mean that you're not, it, it, that's, I hate when people pit sort of causes against each other, you know, some people get me like, oh, what about kids here? And so I was like, what are you doing for kids here? Like, I'd love to come to your fundraiser, you know, like, I am supportive of so many causes. This is just a certain cause that's supposed to me. Um, yeah, I, I sort of run the other way when people start trying to sort of pit me against another cause that is doing just as critical work. Yeah, no, we're all doing our part, and you are very clearly doing your part. So sure, and it's never somebody who's actually doing like you'll never have like a social worker who's working in like a uh, uh, inner city in the state say to you like, "Why aren't you helping kids here?" Because like they can't, you know, like they're in the trenches. They just know that kids are kids. It's somebody who isn't doing that that will start that sort of. Conversation right, it's you. somebody who's not doing jack shit, who's just interested. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just jet like, you're like, yeah, dude, um, well, I'm doing this instead. Thanks. Have a good day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair. It's usually, it's usually at night. Have a good night. Good night. <laughs> yeah, like, a, yeah, we're, I'm going to go now. So, <laughs> you have, you've been doing this for like nine-ish years, and so... Do you have any advice for your nine years ago self or for anyone who's like, yeah, there's this thing that I want to start and I'm pretty sure it's going to be amazing. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be amazing. Like that's sort of the circle that you go through. It's like, this is going to fail, sure. hard, but it could be. So how do you, how do you navigate that? And how do you advise other people to navigate that based on what you've learned from that? I guess if I could give myself advice nine years ago, um, the first piece would be, like, be patient. You know, I just wanted everything to happen overnight, and I was 
so aggressive. Um, and now, as I've gotten older, I just realize that things just happen when they need to happen. Um, I think that patience is something that can really help you personally and professionally. So patience. And the second one, especially for anybody who, and I often get people who reach out to me who are looking to start something, is partner. You know, it's like there are so many nonprofits who are kind of working in a bubble um, and not partnering. And we're just kind of replicating each other's efforts or completely sort of um, circumventing, uh, you know, public efforts. So uh, if I could do it again, you know, I would spend more time looking at education initiatives that, that were already there and seeing how, um, seeing how I could sort of pick a spot that, that would be the most meaningful and probably partner with the government because that's the, the best way to um, have a much longer term impact is when you can sort of slowly pull out. Yeah, partnerships. I think partnerships are like the best way that, you know, it's like if somebody says, I really want to start, you know, I do get all the time, like, I really want to start a school in Uganda. Yeah, I say, well, go meet, go find somebody who has started a school in Uganda and, and see how you can help them. I mean, there's, there's so many good projects going on and, and there's so much need that I would say just wait, be patient, and, and go and find somebody who's doing it in a way that you you respect and join courses with them. Yeah, that's really beautiful. That also takes the pressure of, like, if I was going to have a nonprofit, it would be just like flying kites. Like, yeah, let me just give flying kites money, and then I'm not your competitor <laughs> in some weird way. Like, I'm just like, dude, right. let's just fucking do this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of nonprofits, you know, they, they – the more um, support they have, uh, the more kids they can reach. So if somebody's already created kind of a vehicle, it's better to go and join forces and try and recreate the wheel. Sure, absolutely. So um, if we, can you tell me one more story? That's all, just like a good solid, like will you tell the, <laughs> will you tell the Richard Branson story, the Virgin story? <laughs> it's not really a Richard Branson story. Um, it sounds much sexier that way, though, doesn't it? Like Richard Branson is not involved. It's just Virgin Airlines. I'm sorry, everyone. I deal with it. I do have a Richard Branson story, but up for another day. Um, okay, my energy levels. I got to get my peppy voice. The Richard you don't Branson need your peppy story. voice. It's okay. <laughs> when I <laughs> when I flew to Kenya many years ago. I had a essentially empty plane. It's when Virgin used to fly to Nairobi, they don't anymore. But um and if you've ever flown Virgin, you know that they have these cute little clear uh backpacks and in them they put your toothbrush and your eye mask and your pen and your paper and whatever, your earplugs. So I noticed that there were like, you know, probably legitimately like two hundred of these two hundred of these bags on seats. So I said to the stewardess, um I'm in an orphanage in Kenya, and we have about 60 students, and these backpacks would be such a big deal for the kids. Like, they, they'd love it. You know, they could carry their books in them. They'd have a pen and paper. They'd have a toothbrush. So, you know, people get really excited about giving poor people free shit. Like, everybody wants <laughs> to do it. <laughs> so, before I knew it, I had, I mean, 
I had every single piece of property from that plane. Like, I, they almost gave me the seat. Like, it was, I was really, I was really overweight. But I um, arrived in Jubini with all of these backpacks, you know, three times as many as I needed. And I went to the class and I gave them to the kids, and the kids were so excited. They put them on. They were sort of like drawstring backpacks, and they went home. The next morning, I was looking out down the, mo down the mountain, drinking my coffee, and um, all the kids, all of our students from the community were walking to school. And I sort of just looked out on this, like, sea of red. And I realized that all of their caretakers, their parents or their grandparents, their aunts, had thought that I was sending home a new addition to the school uniform. So. Every single child had the eye mask, the red Virgin Atlantic eye mask that says something ridiculous, like it's not gorgeous. They were wearing it as a hat, and the <laughs> really awful Virgin Made in China socks that like are big on like a basketball player. They all had the socks on, so they got these. So they have a gray uniform. They have this red hat, sleeping mask hat, and they have these red socks. And the cutest part, you know, as the kids come and I'm sort of inspecting their completely ridiculous additions to the uniform, I realized that all of their moms and their grandmothers had tailored the socks to make them fit the kids. So they'd taken these, you know, cheap, cheap socks and they'd like, they'd folded them over and they'd done these beautiful hems on them. And then, like, you know, there were a few kids who probably, like, I don't know, maybe lived with a man or their parents were working late. <laughs> and they, their parents had put, like, a rubber band under the sock and then folded it over. Because these kids have these tiny little spindly legs. Like, have you ever seen a six-year-old, six-year-old knee? Like, they're, <laughs> they're so skinny. Ew. They're so skinny. And, like, the boys in their little shorts with their socks. And I just thought it was such a great metaphor for... Like, I'm trying to please them with this gesture of these free, trashy, stupid airplane bags. And the parents are, like, also trying to do their best for us. And they're trying to just, you know, appease this weird new addition to the uniform. And we're both just, like, trying our best. But we're both kind of laughing at each other. And it was kind of a good sort of, it was a good snapshot of, of what a lot of work can be like when you're sort of, when you're working in a country that's not your own, sort of clumsy, but ultimately, sort of, you have these really heartwarming interactions. Yeah, it's really, really good. You're both trying so hard to make each other happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the kids are somewhere in the middle. Yeah, it was cute though. It was really cute. I think we're the only we're the only school in the world that has a Virgin Atlantic sleeping mask as part of their school uniform. <laughs> I mean, they had to wear it for weeks because it was like, at what point do you send a note home? Like, please stop sending your child in a Virgin Atlantic sleeping mask. <laughs> <laughs> we're just gonna let it play out. All right, let's. You just gotta let it play out, and luckily those things fall apart, you know, very quickly. Right, they were not made for this sort of brutal torture by children. I know, but these moms can bring anything back to life. That's the problem. That's true. They can they can keep it going. It's so funny and so sweet. And I love it so much. I know. So I know. So if I want to give you um 
all of my money, um, where do I go to do that? Uh, I start by saying that's a really great idea. (laughs) (laughs) You can donate right on our website, um, flyingkites.org, and you'll see in the right-hand corner the little donate button, and that will take you to a place where you can pay with a credit card or PayPal, or it can show you where to send a check, or you can email us. We'll take any. We'll take your money any way you want to give it to us. Excellent. There's no wrong way to give you money. I like it a lot. There's no wrong way to give us money. <laughs> and is there anything else that I've just horribly missed or brushed over, or that you need people to know, or that you want to say before we officially wrap the interview and send you on your no. way? No. Cool. I think that just about covered it. <laughs> Awesome. Well, then I'm going to press the stop recording button, and we will call it a day. Thanks for listening, guys. It's flyingkites.org. Get it. Thank you for listening. One more time, The Antidote is a series of monthly gatherings to help you come back to your body, your being, and your breath when it's most likely that you'll self-abandon. The antidote is the antidote to trying to do everything all alone, all by yourself, while you grow more stressed and you're generally freaking out and telling everyone you're fine, while quietly, or not so quietly, scream-sobbing in a private place between tasks. Let's not do that. Let's try something different. This is a really simple format, one gathering a month, on the first Tuesday of the month until the 2024 election. So we're practicing the skills that we will need in November now. And we're getting really comfortable with body, breath, and being now. And that's available to you at jointheantidote.com. There's a free recording. You can sign up. You can get more details. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy.